Hello, this is Dr. Matthew Sutton, a professor of Catholic theology at St. John's University in New York City, giving you the cat's pajamas of podcasts, where I speak about the best of Christian theology, culture, and love. On this episode, I spoke on Holy Saturday. Um, it was March 26, uh, 2015, and the uh, subject was, what I called it at least, was from pain to paint. Uh, the first five minutes were not recorded of the talk, so uh, the beginning, uh, I basically start by saying there are two Holy Saturdays, two Holy Sabbaths. The first Holy Saturday is a seventh day rest in Genesis chapter 1. God looks at his creation, declares it very good, as he dwells in a resting presence with his creation, with his people. The second Holy Saturday is the day between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, which is the focus of the presentation. But I say uh, these two Saturdays belong together. This first is about creation, and the second is about redemption. But they are both about God's compassionate presence, his compassionate dwelling with us. After this first five minutes, uh, the rest of the talk is there for you. Enjoy. What's happening today? It's God rescuing his creation. And that creation that he saw at the beginning of everything and said, this is very good. He's also saying that today too, this is very good because I'm making it new. I'm making it new. So that's what we're remembering and thinking about uh, today. Um, so uh, the last time I spoke to the fraternity at our last retreat, which was ages ago, uh, too long ago, uh, the, the text I had given uh, us all was from Romans 8, and that was Romans 8.28. It was um, a talk on expectancy. Romans 8.28, if you remember it. Uh, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And it's a beautiful phrase that Christians need to have that God is working in everything. God is working in everything for those that love him for his purposes. Not for our purposes, but for his purposes. And so to expect God to show up. That's what we spoke about in our previous retreat. And so that's all from Romans chapter 8. And uh, 10 verses later in Romans chapter 8 is uh, Paul's words on presence. He says this, this is Romans 8:38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a beautiful phrase that reemphasizes that nothing can separate us from God's love. Nothing can separate us. And notice what it starts off with, neither death nor life. So in life, we can understand God is a source of life and being present there. But in death, this time when we see absence, when we see the, the body that was alive and no longer alive, that something is missing, even God is there with his love. And so that got me, that Romans 8.38 got me to this psalm verse, 139, 7-9, uh, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Okay, so there's three parts to the, to the talk, and if you would just want to write them down, it's Joseph, Mary, and not us. 
Joseph, Mary, and not us. Okay, so um, the, the longer phrase for part one for Joseph is, who turned the lights out? Uh, there are three Josephs in scripture. Can you name them all? Can you Joseph. name all the... Go ahead, go for it. Technicolor coat. <laughs> <laughs> Joseph, the, the famous son of uh, Jacob, yeah, who had the beautiful coat and his father's love and had some problems with his brothers because of that. Okay, that's good. That's one Joseph. Who else? Joseph of Arimathea. Oh, good. Joseph of Arimathea. Good. Okay, I was, I was wondering, usually you would get the next, the, the more popular Joseph. Yeah. But you got the less popular Joseph or less known Joseph. Yeah, Joseph of Arimathea. And then, of course, Joseph, husband of Mary. So these three Josephs belong together. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but we often forget about Joseph, and uh, especially during Holy Week, we, of, uh, we often forget about Joseph, but we're going to remember Joseph because I, I'm talking. <laughs> <laughs> so you can do your own little talk about somebody else you like. I'm going to talk about Joseph. So all three Josephs had a Holy Saturday moment. All three Josephs had a Holy Saturday moment. And what I mean by a Holy Saturday moment, I mean feeling abandoned by everybody and also, in some ways, feeling abandoned by God. So, you know the story of the first Joseph, Joseph, son of Jacob. Uh, he has this dream that all of his brothers are going to worship him, are going to bow to him, I mean. Um, and he tells, of course, his brothers this. And uh, Jacob uh, loves his son, Joseph, so much. Um, so this is not something wise of Joseph to be telling every, all of his brothers, hey, by the way, I'm the best one here, especially since he's a younger one and they're a lot tougher. And so what, is, what happens to Joseph? Some bad things. Bad things? Well, like what? What do, what do his brothers first want to do to him? Murder him, kill him, right? So they first want to murder him, kill him. Then uh, one brother, Reuben, has the idea of, let's make some money off, off of this. Much better. All right? uh, you, a dead person you can't make money off of, but a, a, a slave you can make money off of. And so they put him in a pit, and they wait for some travelers to come. So that's the first pit Joseph enters into, wondering, my brothers put me down here. What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to me? And so, of course, they uh, sell, his brothers sell him into slavery. He goes to Egypt, and he's uh, made a slave uh, in Egypt, and, which is also still another pit. So he goes from one pit to another pit of being a slave, but because of his faithfulness and his duties, he rises up in, in Pharaoh's court, uh, such that um, he's uh, one of the top servants in Pharaoh's court, and his... Uh, Pontifer, the uh, Pharaoh's wife, takes a liking to him, and there's a struggle of her trying to get her way uh, on him, and sh uh, of course he's a righteous man, he rejects this, and uh, still a scandal erupts, and Pharaoh throws him into another pit. So if you've been counting, that's two pits uh, that Joseph ends up in. And so here in this pit, you know the story, uh, he is uh, seemingly abandoned. He had been good and faithful to God's ways, and yet everything fell apart. Not because of his doing, right? The first pit was maybe kind of his doing in some ways because he was, brothers were 
you know, he wasn't being wise with his brothers, but still it wasn't justified that he would be sold into slavery. This second pit that he's in, he doesn't deserve it. There's nothing that he deserves to be first sold into slavery and now here um, seemingly abandoned, seemingly forgotten. And you know the story, we don't have to go through all of it, but he interprets dreams of the, the, of the two, uh, the baker and the cupbearer. And uh, these, of course, uh, uh, one of them makes it alive and gets back to Pharaoh. And eventually, 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 this cupbearer talks about this person that can interpret dreams. And Pharaoh then recruits him and takes him out of the, the pit. But I, I want us to think, when we think of the Joseph story, we think of the, um, the ending with his brothers, where everything is going very well for him, he, because he's able to interpret this dream of Pharaoh, that there's going to be this great uh, feasting in the land for seven years, and then there's going to be this great famine. And so Joseph is mindful. He's gone through two pits, and now he realizes Egypt's about to go through a famine time, so let's prepare Right? So let's prepare for this famine, this, this pit that Egypt is going to go through. And so Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge. And, uh, of course, his brothers now end up in a pit in famine in the Holy Land. And they have to come begging to Egypt, to the Pharaoh, for provisions. And Joseph eventually reveals who he is to them. Uh, there's, uh, it's a long story. It's a beautiful story. But there's reconciliation that happens. I'm not sure if you've uh, read that whole story all together in one sitting, but if you do, you see, first of all, how long of a story it is. How long of a story it is that Joseph had a, a beginning of sorrow and disappointment that continued and continued. He was faithful through all of it, but there were so many downs. There was a few ups, but so many more downs, so many more disappointments. and. All the while, it would have been easy for him to say, you know what, God has abandoned me. God has abandoned me. I'm going to do this by myself. But God was writing a longer story. He wasn't just writing, okay, you've got a bad day today and tomorrow's going to be a better day. He had a longer story with Joseph. And so here at the end of Joseph's story, uh, he has his um, brothers around him. His father dies. This is the last chapter of Genesis. His father dies. And this is when the brothers wonder if now Joseph was just being nice because dad was around. And so they are afraid of what Joseph's going to do now that dad's not here. And there's this beautiful line that Joseph speaks that summarizes so much of our lives when we have disappointments. So many disappointments that all of us carry. Joseph speaks this word of faith. He says to his brothers, You meant it for evil, throwing me into slavery. You meant it for evil, but God intended it for good. Right? He was clear about how evil it was that he was sold into slavery, and he makes them know that. You meant it for evil, but God worked good out of this, that all of you have been provided for. All of you have been provided for. So I want us to think about that Joseph story uh, and the other two Joseph story. But here we have in this first Joseph story, somebody who has a, all these plans of his life 
destroyed and not remade instantly, but through the long story of his life, God does something so much more miraculous for Jacob and his sons. So Joseph was used for these grand purposes. So let's talk about the other Joseph, Joseph, son of Jesse, who becomes the husband of Mary and the foster father of Jesus. Hey, did anything disappointing happen to Joseph? <laughs> I'm going to get married, Mary. <laughs> yeah, but I'm pregnant. <laughs> Can you imagine that kind of disappointment? Uh, that is, that's the disappointment where Joseph is saying to himself, I don't deserve this. I'm a good and righteous man. I thought I was receiving this beautiful woman as my wife, and we were going to have this wonderful family. I was going to have my little carpentry shop, and everything was going to go well for us, and my kids were going to be working in that carpentry shop, and we're going to be faithful to God's covenant, and we're going to live in the land that he has given to us, even though uh, we're oppressed by the Romans. Everything is going well for me, Mary says, by the way, I'm pregnant. And wait a second, we're engaged and we're faithful and uh, this can't be explained. And Mary says, I know, but I'm, I'm pregnant. Joseph on that day is dealing with a tremendous amount of disappointment. A, a, a Holy Saturday moment, a pit moment. All of his plans for his life are, 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 are done. I mean, we could dwell and think about what Mary's thinking about all of her plans being in some ways up, turned around for her life by now being pregnant. But let's think about Joseph. In the Gospel of Matthew, that's what Matthew focuses on, is Joseph trying to find a way out uh, that protects her, right? And I love this little story. He went to go seek to put her away. And if you know anything in the... If you get into you know crime stories in the mafia, you know what put away means. I'm sure maybe I'm not not sure, but I'm probably Joseph had this. I'm gonna kill her, All right? But he's gonna put her away in in the sense that he's going to um, not cause any public shame with this pregnancy, and that also could mean her death, uh, her being uh, stoned for unfaithfulness in in this time. So he's trying to find a way out that's good for her. And I like that about Joseph. He's trying to figure it out for, for himself. He hasn't given up on God, but at the same time, he's trying to figure it out. Disappointment has come, and so he's, he's trying to make his lemonade because God's given him lemons, right? But God has something bigger for him and says, Joseph, don't give her up. Don't give her up. Don't give her up. Uh, so he has to learn to accept his disappointment. In this case, it's the whole redemption of all of humanity is in that child. So his disappointment has caused the, the joy of the ages. But he got hit first. I always think of disappointments that have happened in my life. And I remember uh, one of these disappointments that happened to me. I could get into it. But I remember going to Mass that day, and it was a reading from uh, Job. And um, 
and, and it's this short little reading that says, God, you duped me. And it's, it's an odd English word. It's an old English word. God, you've duped me. I've been duped. Uh, it, how to translate it in, in more common English, but you fooled me, God. And that idea of dupe, being duped doesn't quite capture being fooled. There's something almost malicious in that English word duped. God, you duped me, right? You didn't just huh, you know, pull a magic trick. Oh, you got me there, God. But that phrase, you duped me, is that this looks evil, but it's coming from God, and so it can't be evil. And yet it feels so tremendously disappointing. So tremendously disappointing. But of course, Job is faithful. He doesn't understand, but he's faithful. And so the first two Josephs didn't understand, but they were faithful. And they, they worshipped in their disappointment. They worshipped in their disappointment. That's what I'm going to get to with the next uh, and last uh, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. And this is his day today, Joseph of Arimathea. In all kinds of ways, he's sometimes forgotten, but we have to think about what changed for him on the day of Good Friday, on Holy Saturday, and, and Easter Sunday. Because he was a rich man, he had uh, planned his, his, I'm sure his retirement, but also planned his grave. He had a, a grave site set out for him, uh, a man-made cave um, that was set aside for, for him. Uh, so he had his life together, as well as his, his funeral plans together, right? He had it laid out. Um, and we think, of course, that he was a member of the Council of the Sanhedrin that uh, convicted Jesus that eventually led to his um, being crucified, but, and most likely was not there at that secret Sanhedrin meeting in which he was um, convicted of, of, or Jesus was convicted of, of blasphemy. But Joseph of Arimathea's plans get completely upset with this one day, Good Friday where he sees somebody who's innocent and his counsel has convicted him and tried him for blasphemy and has crucified him. So Joseph of Arimathea's plans were this dignified life of, the, of being on the Sanhedrin council, right, being a leader within that nation as best as possible under Roman oppression, and also later in his life, having figured out his funeral plans and everything gets upset when he meets the, the death of Jesus and like a good man he sees the need where are we going to bury him and he says I know where we're going to bury him so he's there on Holy Saturday he's there on the day that God looked to God son of God looked to God the Father and said my God my God why have you forsaken me so he's seen the Son of God crying out in disappointment. And like a good man, he, he's trying to make do with what he has. He has a dead body and he has a grave and he goes to bury, helps uh, to help the disciples to bury Jesus. So I want you to think about all three of these Josephs. They all had moments or long lives of disappointment long lives when their, their plans were completely upended. And yet, they trusted God. And yet, they trusted God. 
not of their own power, but of God's power. So remember this first section I titled, Who Turned Out the Lights? Who turned out the lights, right? Joseph, first Joseph, is in slavery uh, and is thrown into prison. Who turned out the lights? Well, his brothers, first of all, and then the, his boss, right? I don't know what your family life is like. Uh, my brother and I fought a lot. Uh, he tried to throw me in the pit, and I threw him back in the pit. <laughs> there, there are also other disappointments in my family life. I, I come from a divorced family. Uh, my parents, uh, when I was in high school, uh, divorced. It was a long, tragic, abusive relationship that needed to end, but it ended badly and has lasting effects on, on my brother and I. And, and so in our family, we've had disappointments that we didn't deserve. Who turned out the lights? My brother and I were asking as we saw our dad leave. Who turned out the lights? Who is giving us this disappointment? And yet we, we can't change that. We can't change that. And yet here we are. Uh, so Joseph had his uh, family turn on him. They turned the lights on on him. Uh, but also his boss turned the lights on on him. Have any of you had a perfect record in your job where everything went completely well with your coworkers and, and your boss? Have you ever been fired before? <laughs> or almost fired or pushed out? It wasn't your fault, was it? Or maybe it was a little bit. <laughs> but have you ever had disappointment in your work? Deep disappointment in your work. I know I have. I know I have. Um, and I can get into it. I remember uh, in this long process of trying to become tenured at my work, uh, there was one vote that happened that seemed completely wrong. I had a good year of lots of uh, research produced and cal uh, um, calculated in the right places and, and all of that, and I thought it was fine for you know the next years mm -hmm. as I was approaching uh, the big tenure vote, but this mid-cycle uh, vote, I got uh, you know a very bad vote, a very disappointing vote that I was not making progress towards uh, promotion in my career. I was completely disappointed. I did everything right, I thought, and yet I had to face disappointment. And that's when we're tested in all kinds of ways by the people around us, but also within ourselves, where we thought we are completely on the right track, and now we're even having to doubt ourselves. Why did this happen? I thought I was doing everything right. So who turned out the lights? Now, Joseph, the second Joseph, uh, yes, it was his family that disappointed him. Who turned out the lights? But it's also God turning off the lights for, for this Joseph, where his life that he had pl uh, planned out for, he and, and Mary to have a wonderful family. And now there's a kid that's coming from God the Father. So this disappointment that he's uh, facing is coming from God. So sometimes disappointment is coming from uh, our families, our, our work, sometimes it's coming from God because he has something so much more for us. But we are so short-sighted in all kinds of ways that sometimes we don't see what God has in store for us. So the disappointment that Joseph of Arimathea faced was that the Son of God, who he thought was the Messiah, is now dead. And his disciples have abandoned him 
maybe Joseph on the outside looked at these disciples and said, wow, these are amazing people. I'm hearing of healings. I'm hearing of miracles happening. And this seems all lost. So who turned out the lights? And yet they have faith. So think of these Josephs. Now we're going to think of Mary. Okay, we're going to think of Mary. Um, the, so I said Joseph, who turned out the lights, and I'm saying Mary. And the, the subject of this one is uh, from pain to paint. From pain to paint. Um, okay, I'm going to show a, a, a picture of Mary. Some of you have, have seen this one. This is Ma uh, the Virgin at prayer. Yeah, I'll show it to you. I don't know if you can see. It. There's a little bit of a glare there, but you've probably seen this. Yeah, I know this one. It's by uh, Sarah Ferrato. Um, what I find fascinating in this picture, I don't know what seems so vivid to you. Of course, it's the beautiful, almost porcelain face. But what strikes me is, okay, you have this deep black background, mm -hmm. but look at that blue. Mm -hmm. Isn't that beautiful, that blue? Let me show you again. I, one of the things I love about this painting is how intense that blue is. Uh, this blue is not something you can just generate on a computer program, right? So some of you have done web development. You can just enter in your code and you can make your, your different colors. But time was, you had to make your colors. And this blue is so difficult to make. It's called uh, a lapis lazuli. Lapis lazuli is the mineral in which you need to make this intense blue. And in the Renaissance, lapis lazuli was so rare, uh, so rare that in all kinds of ways it was more precious, more valuable than gold. Uh, for ages, um, sometimes you would find little artifacts in the West uh, made out of this blue mineral. But it, what, the only main mine that uh, was known in the Renaissance was in Afghanistan, in a very difficult area within Afghanistan. We think of how difficult Afghanistan is for us today. Just, you can't even imagine what it was in the, in the Renaissance in all kinds of ways. Lapis lazuli. So you know how paints uh, are made out of minerals. They have to be crushed, right? So they, they have to be, whoops. This is, this is the lapis azuli. Okay. This is that picture of it. You see? Very precious. God bless you, Katie. Okay, so in and, in and of itself, it's a beautiful stone. Beautiful stone. Just such a rich blue. Uh, and it can only be found in one place, Afghanistan deep in the mines of Afghanistan, right? You think it's tough in <laughs> Afghanistan. Think about the mines in Afghanistan. But I want us to think about this painting <coughs> and this mineral. 
So this mineral, lapis lazuli, right, is so rare, and artists knew it because of the, the deep, deep blue that comes from it, ultramarine blue, or, or also is called royal blue. It was so rare and so precious that it was reserved for only painting Mary and sometimes angels. Later, as it became more available, uh, a little bit more available, uh, you got it being used in uh, other works. Vermeer used it in some of his works. Uh, the, the girl with the pearl earring has this big blue um, uh, headband. There's probably a better word than that. But that blue of Vermeer and also the milkmaid has this, uh, this blue. But first, in the, in the Renaissance, when this became uh, a, a, a paint that was available, it was only reserved for Mary, that royal blue. That royal blue. And, um, what I find fascinating is that how are we going to depict Mary? Artists want to show their deep devotion that they have towards Mary. And what they use is this precious stone. This precious stone. But in order to make a paint out of it, it has to be crushed, right? So think about the history of this paint that uh, Sarah Ferrato had to use. So Sarah Ferrato finds a dealer that has this paint that can source it to him, and he's using a lot in this painting. So think of all the money that had to be raised in order to buy this specific paint, but he's using a lot. I want you to think about the history of that paint. Where did that come from? So the history of that paint that Sarah Ferrato used for this painting had a millennia history. God formed that gem in that mine deep in the bowels of the earth for so long, and God sees everything. God knows everything. God has had prepared this kind of stone for knowing that Seraphirato is going to use it to show his devotion to Mary. What I want you to think about is the disappointment that you have in your life, the being crushed, being pulverized that you have in your life, but even more so that we see in other people's lives. God is using for good, not just tomorrow. We have to see how God sees. He sees a future that we cannot possibly imagine. <clears throat> Think of that stone that was being refined in those mines in Afghanistan. If it had any kind of conscience, it would say, oh, my life is horrible. <laughs> I'm stuck in this mine, but look how beautiful I am. I'm stuck in this mine in darkness, and there's no light to show how beautiful I am. For ages in that mine, in that darkness, in that disappointment, there's no light. And that's the thing about color, is that it needs light. In and of itself, it's, it has all of these elements of beauty, but there's one thing missing, light. And so think of those miners that were mining in Afghanistan, searching and searching. They find this stone, they bring it out into the light, and poof, look how intense. 
intense that blue is. Look how intense that blue is. So only when they brought this stone being refined into the light did they see this beauty that God had been forming for ages. That then eventually makes it to this painting. So you see, I, we have pain in our life in all kinds of ways in our past, all kinds of disappointments, some light pain, some serious pain. We see pain in others. They don't deserve it. They don't deserve this sickness that they're, they're facing, this being abandoned by the people they, they trusted. We see this pain in people's lives. And we're smart, we're compassionate, and so we don't just say, it's going to be okay. In that kind of easy way, it's going to be okay. I mean, it is going to be okay, but not in that easy way it's going to be okay. There's going to be pain, and the pain <coughs> is going to last. But what we're speaking to people, what we're speaking to ourselves, is that pain is going to be used by God to paint a beautiful picture. That pain is going to be used to paint a beautiful picture. I remember being in um, a worship time and in college, and I remember God just really putting in my mind the, the Michelangelo's Pietà, which is a beautiful statue of Holy Saturday of when everybody has abandoned Jesus, even life seems to have abandoned Jesus, but Mary is there holding him. And it's a beautiful statue to think about how faithful Mary is when everybody else has given up hope, but she hasn't given up hope. She can still give one last hug, one last caress, one last, I'm here with you, child. And I love that statue in all the different forms and we have the beautiful shrine that has another compassionate caress that Mary is giving to, to Jesus. But in this time of worship, uh, I remember having so vividly that um, uh, image of the, the Pieta and then it got time to be uh, in this time of worship uh, people able to uh, offer different prayers. And one person offered this prayer and just said in that prayer time, uh, who, whoever is having a vision of Michelangelo's Pietà, it's going to be okay. And I was like, oh. So God, you know, had set me up to give this message and that I needed at that time. And I was so moved by that. I was so amazed that God could do that. And since it came from God, I knew it was going to be okay. Not in that easy way it's going to be okay that we often give to people. I know you're having a bad day. Don't worry, it's going to be okay. There's, tomorrow's another day. Uh, but for a lot of people, tomorrow is even a day of more, more and more pain. So that it's going to be okay that we often flip off is not what we need to offer to them. But it is going to be okay. <laughs> there is going to be an Easter. There is going to be paint made out of this pain. We just can't see it yet. We just can't see it yet. Mary couldn't see it yet as she's holding her dead son. 
she who had held him when she, he was a little tiny baby and couldn't do anything, he held her, excuse me, she held him as this little child who couldn't do anything, but she could just be there like any mother can be there, and that's what that child needs. And now here at the end of his life, that's the one thing she can give to him. I'm here. I'm here. I don't know how. I don't know how, but God is going to make this okay. So, Joseph, we talked about him, who turned the lights out. Uh, Mary, we've talked about her from pain to paint. And now the third thing is, it's not about us. It's not a, it is about us, but it's not about us. That's the idea that I want us to think about. Um, when I look at my, my own life, um, I have in my past, and, and I know we can find different ways in, in your past that uh, maybe are similar, or, or at least the emotion might be similar, but I know I've had moments when uh, I've had tremendous amounts of, of self-doubt, maybe depression in all kinds of different ways. I remember um, when I, my freshman year in college, I was in a different town than I had grown up and I didn't have any friends. Uh, and I decided to join a play and I became the main um, part in this play and I had never had this main part in this play and there's only two actors in this play and so it's all on me and it's an hour and a half long and I never, had that kind of role before and the director was horrible to me just horrible to me she, she had a plan to you know draw me out like crush me down and and then lift me up it just felt like being crushed I have to say and I remember um, just getting in this downward spiral of you know I can't do this part this is way beyond me that I can't do this this is this is something too much for me and I um, got a call from my uh, uncle, who's very much involved in theater, I've, I've talked about him before, and I got a call from him, uh, and he told me his story of when he first moved to New York. And he just said, uh, I'm gonna try New York for five years and see what happens with this whole theater thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's anybody like that, Marion, that went to <laughs> New York and said, I'm gonna try this thing. Well, that happened to my uncle, Larry, and he had several years of of tremendous amounts of difficulty, it's worked out for him. He's on Broadway. He's, uh, his show right now is called Disaster, and it's an amazing show. Uh, it's a disaster. It's hilarious. I hope you get to see it, but it's a disaster. But he called me and told me this story. I only knew him as Broadway uh, uncle. But he told me the story of when he first got here, and that downward spiral he kept getting himself into of, of doubting himself, doubting himself. What am I doing? I'm being foolish. What am I doing? I shouldn't be here. I don't belong here. I'm going to go back to where I grew up and just be the big fish in the small pond rather than be this you know, big actor, which I can't be anyway. And, and so he told me this story of, of how our talk in our minds can destroy us. How our talk in our minds can destroy us. Uh, one thing I, I work on with, with my students is that I, I try to get them to understand that they have a soundtrack, right? 
And you and I have the soundtrack too. What do we sing when nothing's going on? What do we sing when nothing's going on? Right? Uh, it comes to you. Maybe it's little tunes from when you were a kid. Maybe it was when you first got into music as a teenager and those lyrics start popping up. It could be Madonna. I, whatever it is, there's this music in our heads that comes out uh, at moments that maybe we want and maybe we uh, don't want, but there's this soundtrack there, right? And sometimes we choose a soundtrack when we're being smart. Okay, I'm going to do this seriously. I'm going to study and I'm going to put on this, this music and we're going to get this done. I'm going to control the soundtrack. But what about those moments when we're not controlling the soundtrack? What are we singing? And so I get my students to ask them, what are they singing when they are playing that soundtrack? Not when they're in control of it, but when they're just in baseline mode. What's that song that's there? What's that song that's there? Uh, when I was in um, uh, a teenager, I really got into this band called Radiohead. Before Radiohead became Radiohead, uh, when they were more rock and le and less experimental. But one of their their first songs that first started to get them uh, to be this big thing was this song called "I Am a Creep." It's a great song. Oh my yes, gosh. It yes, it is. I'm a creep. I'm a loser. Uh, uh, I don't belong here. And it, that's these horrible lyrics. That's these horrible lyrics. Uh, and I remember just as a teenager singing that and you know identifying with that, that I'm this creep. Uh, and and I, it still, it comes out. At these moments uh, when I'm not controlling you know what I'm what I'm saying to myself but have you ever gotten caught in that downward spiral of saying this one thing that's horrible about yourself over and over and over and over and over again over and over again I'm so ashamed I'm so ashamed I'm so ashamed I'm so why did I do that why did I do that why did I do that I really don't deserve this to be here Whatever it is, that, that downward spiral, that self-talk, I'm a creep, I'm a loser, I don't belong here. And what I want us to um, come to is that those three Josephs had the chance to play that soundtrack of, I'm a disappointment, I'm a loser, I should be ashamed. But you know what they didn't sing was that song I'm a creep what they did sing was that song at the beginning that I invoked for us where shall I go from your spirit Psalm 139 is what they sang or where shall I flee from your presence if I ascend to heaven you are there if I make my bed in Sheol you are there they had practiced worship in the synagogues with these psalms. Those psalms became their, their soundtrack. And so when they were in the pit, they could go to those psalms and speak, sing those words. So when we worship together and everything's great and we're surrounded by so many wonderful, amazing people that are singing these beautiful songs that we all sing, we're taking a feasting that's going to prepare us for the famine. We're 
ascending into heaven in our worship together where we're knowing that we're in God's presence so that when we're in Sheol, when we're in hell, when we're in disappointment, we're still going to be worshiping. We're still going to say that one last, I love you, Lord. My heart is for you, Lord. That one last worship. So if I can just close with one um, story from the Gospel of Matthew. This is um, Matthew chapter 8. Uh, so much stuff is going on in Matthew chapter 8. There's so many great stories. I'm just going to start with Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. And when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Are you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Beautiful passage to meditate on. There's so much going on in this passage. I'm just going to focus on a couple things. They got into the boat. The storm started to happen. Jesus went to sleep. We're here on Holy Saturday. The storms are raising up in Jerusalem. Jesus falls asleep. Jesus dies. And of course, most likely in this boat, it had some kind of uh, under, um, uh, an under room, so he probably wasn't exposed to all the rain and the wind. There probably was a small little cabin where somebody could sleep. And so he went under into the bowels of the boat, and that's where he was sleeping, being rocked like a baby. Uh, uh, he had just been preaching that whole day, and it had been a long day, a lot of people being healed. He's exhausted. He doesn't care if there's a storm. He's going to sleep. Have you had those days? Maybe today is one of those days where you woke up and you said, when am I going to be back here in this bed again? <laughs> I've had those days where you wake up and you kind of count the hours until you get back there. Jesus is in that moment. Guys, you deal with the storm. I'm going to sleep. And like, Jesus, help us. He goes to sleep. Right? So the storms of pain and disappointment that we are surrounded in, these storms that we're in, sometimes Jesus falls asleep. Where are you, Lord? Where are you, Lord? And they are at this breaking moment, and that's when they worship. That's what I want us to get at. When the storms are raging around them, they're not cursing the storm. They're worshiping Jesus and going to Him and saying, Save us, Lord. We are perishing. We're dying here, Jesus. Save us. I don't know if you can, uh, in this nice company, uh, maybe not say where you were at in your life when you were there with Jesus in that storm saying, save me, Jesus, I'm perishing. Right now, you guys look like you're pretty well and alive. But you know people right now who need that prayer to Jesus, save us, we are perishing. We are perishing. 
So they offer in the pain one last worship because they had practiced it when it wasn't a storm outside. They had sung Hosanna's Save us, Lord, before. Now they really mean it. Now they really mean it. And I love what he says. We often think he's rebuking them, but he rebukes the storm. He doesn't rebuke his disciples. This is very important. We sometimes get, it sometimes gets interpreted this way. Uh, they say to Jesus, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, you know, he's probably still got drool on his mouth because he's probably having one of those kind of sleeps, you know, where he's just, it's just he's probably being woken up in that, in that cycle of sleep where it's just, he's just done, right? And the drool is still there. And they're saying to him, save us, we are perishing. Yeah, <laughs> mopping it up. And this is how I read it. Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? He's not. Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. He's not rebuking them for their, their lack of faith. He's encouraging them. You know, I just uh, started my girls in softball again, and Gemma is on this new team, and the first practice... She was crying. Dad, I missed the ball. <laughs> right? It was the very first. The kid threw it to her. She missed it. <laughs> She's crying. Save me, Dad. I'm perishing. I missed the ball. And she comes over to me. And I didn't say, Oh, why are you afraid, you of little faith? I said, Why are you afraid? You have little faith. You're a great player. You're going to miss things. There's going to be a storm where you're going to miss this, but it's okay, I'm here. That's how he's speaking to them. Like a father to a child. Like Jesus to us. There's a storm raging around you. You've done the right thing and you've come to me. Don't be afraid. And then he rebukes the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. He turned their pain, and he painted a beautiful picture. And you know what? That story of these disciples is what we're reading here. So our story of disappointment, our story of the storms, are going to be used for generations if we tell them. And people down the lines through all the legacies that we leave behind are going to be remembering that disappointment that we had in our past and are going to see in our lives how God painted a beautiful picture. And that's going to give them hope that it's going to be okay. Not in this easy it's going to be okay, but in this, why are you afraid? I've got this. Why are you afraid? I'm the Lord. I possess the keys of death and of Hades, and I've come for everyone that wants my words of love. And he's freed them. And so that's where I want us to end on, is that when we think about the times that we've experienced disappointment in ourselves, in others,
when we see disappointments of those that we're trying to help, we're there to offer what Mary offered to Jesus. I'm here. I'm here. I don't know how it's going to turn out for you, but I'm here. And I know God's here. Because he's in heaven, you're going to find him there. He's in Sheol, you're going to find him there. He's here in this storm. Let's go together and say to him, save us, Jesus. We're perishing. And he's going to say, don't be afraid. And so that's where I want us to to leave off of. And then we have a text that we can share and and speak about. But maybe we can just close with a prayer at this time and then move into that text. Is that okay? Mm In the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, could you please, um, um, in your own mind, offer somebody and yourself, but offer somebody that is experiencing tremendous sadness, storms, disappointments, perishing, being crushed, being pulverized, whatever it is, can you just lift this person up to God? Dear Lord, save us. Save this person we're thinking of. They are perishing, Lord. Speak to them. Speak to them, Lord. Speak to them that they shouldn't be afraid because you are there. Hold their hand, Lord, because you are there. And Lord, please help us in our own disappointments, our own sorrows, our own pits, to worship you, to come to you and say, save us, we are perishing. Please prepare us now when things are well to worship you so that when things are horrible and in the dark and in the pit, we can worship you even there. Please, Lord, heal this person we bring to you now. Please, Lord, heal us as we bring ourselves to you. And we know you will because you love us. We are your child. And you're going to speak to us. You're going to speak to us. Do not be afraid. So we offer this through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Our Lady of Compassion, who's accompanying us today. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you so much for listening to me, Dr. Matthew Sutton. Please uh, subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and go ahead and rate it so others can know about it. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Sutton. That's D-O-C-T-O-R-S-U-T-T-O-N. And I'm also on Instagram at Samurai Moses. Hey, my website is drsutton.net. There's so much good there. So please go ahead and visit and subscribe. Cheers and make something beautiful for God.